0: This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Hi, I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on using groups to address anger, anxiety, depression, and addiction. So there's a lot to cover, but not really. Um, I am Dr. Donnelly Snipes, and I will be your host We're going to review the benefits of groups, identify some modalities of groups, and then we'll get into the fun stuff, discussing goals for psychoeducational and skills groups, addressing anger, anxiety, addiction, and depression issues, basically those underlying issues, and explore activities that can be used to enhance group engagement. Again, if you have some great group activities that you love using, then it's going to be uh, awesome if you share those in chat. So, groups are cost effective. When we talked about this a little bit yesterday, when um, people go to groups, when we run groups, we don't charge the same for groups that we do for individuals. Well, go figure. But people can afford you know 10 20 30 dollars i think 30 dollars is usually pushing it for group but you know i've seen it around here and people can afford that each week whereas they may not be able to afford 100 120 dollars per week in groups people get peer feedback and support and they hear um, suggestions from their peers There's a development there as they support one another. They're developing those um, interpersonal skills, active listening skills, all that stuff that we want them to develop. Groups reduce isolation and uniqueness because people hear that, hey, there's 10, 12 other people in this room who've experienced something similar. I'm not the only one. And there are a lot of observers like we talked about yesterday um, or Tuesday maybe when you're in a group. When it's one therapist to 12 people, you're really outnumbered and it's hard to notice every single person's nonverbals. So if you have the group working well, then other group members will notice things in each other and may be able to call each other out um, in an appropriate supportive sort of way. Modalities for group really are endless you can use a lot of different modalities a lot of the stuff we're going to talk about today is difficult to do in any other modality but face to face unless you're way more creative than i am but uh, there are times when you really want to have a group and you're willing to sacrifice some of the gamification in order to have more of a discussion group and for those types of groups you can use web meeting and you can have a video Group, and you can also have what they call breakout rooms. So, if you have something that you want people to do in small group activities, and we're going to talk about some of those, you can have people go to breakout rooms and then come back to the main room. It really depends on the techn- technological savvy of your clients, though. Uh, you want to make sure that they're comfortable going to breakout rooms and then coming back, etc. Web meeting, you can also do via chat if you don't want to do video-based group. That's a little bit harder, but it's not impossible. I mean, obviously, we have all probably participated in group chat rooms before. If you're doing something that is more of a psychoeducational group, it's less practical to do it from a chat standpoint because there's a lot of you, the leader, Typing and people just sitting there um, in more of a support group Or if you use a more interactive format then chat can be really useful and chat has its own unique Benefits because once people say something in group it goes away, you know, they say it people hear it it goes away when you type something and it's there on the screen you actually are sitting with it for a little while longer. Even in a chat room where it's eventually going to scroll off the screen, you're sitting there with that for a little while longer. And people tend to ponder it a little bit more. So there are some uh, useful interventions that can revolve around chat. And that's especially useful for individual, which we're not talking about today. But um, if you do e-therapy, you know, consider the power of having words actually there and where they're not disappearing. Once they're there, they're out there for everybody to see, well, you and the client. Asynchronous groups. You can do a psychoeducational or skills video and have the clients watch the video. So all of that lecture part is handled ahead of time and then everybody gets together and has an interactive chat or video discussion about the video. Or you can have some sort of a forum that's moderated where people watch the video and then they respond to questions. You want to make sure that whatever you're using, you're maintaining your compliance with HIPAA, high tech, and 42 CFR Part 2, which is your substance abuse um, confidentiality requirements, when you're doing those things. And, you know, There's a lot to remember, so if you're doing e-therapy, one of the biggest things to remember is just make sure, please make sure that you have in your hands a signed business associate agreement from the providers that you're using. It's important. It doesn't cut it if they say, we're HIPAA compliant. Well, that's great. I need it in hand, or I can be held um, extra liable, if you will commonalities among addiction depression anxiety and and anger well let's think about it anger and anxiety are two sides of the fight or flee reaction they're two sides of a response to a threat okay when you are feeling helpless and hopeless that's depression now sometimes people become helpless and hopeless after they've experienced a threat for too long and have not excessive stress and have not been able to deal with that. So then they start to become worn down and start to experience learned helplessness. So anger, anxiety, and depression, we can see how do they kind of connect. Addiction, Sometimes develops as a way to self-medicate anger, anxiety, or depression, or sometimes develops because people were using recreationally and their neurotransmitters started to get wonky, for lack of a better clinical term, and then they started needing more. They started developing that tolerance, and they gradually moved into a uh, substance use disorder. Either way. When you're working with clients that have any of these disorders, most of them are experiencing some degree of low self-esteem. Most of them have some level of cognitive distortions, emotional dysregulation, poor interpersonal skills, fears surrounding or threats surrounding isolation, rejection, failure, loss of control and the unknown, and poor lifestyle behaviors. When you think about, and you know, I'll challenge you, you know, if your mind starts drifting a little bit today, think about some of the things that your clients present with, some of the presenting triggering problems. How do they relate to a fear of isolation or rejection? You know, if if I'm different, if I'm unique, if nobody understands me, or if nobody likes me, or I'm not lovable, or failure. And sometimes people fear failure because they see or they think that if they fail at something, they'll also be rejected. Um, Loss of control, you know, thinking, especially if you grow up thinking you can control everything, or if you grow up in an environment where you've always felt powerless, either extreme can lead to mood symptoms. And the unknown, especially for people who've experienced trauma, uh, loss of control and the unknown can be big triggers for anxiety and anger Maybe even depression. Um, so thinking about those sorts of things in childhood, um, there are a lot. There's a lot of stuff that comes up that people are still dealing with regarding failures, um, times they felt isolated or rejected, uh, things that they had no control over, and helping them address these sorts of things now because the powers that they had, the skills that they had when they were eight, twelve, fourteen. very different than the skills and tools that they have now that they're 24 25 26 hopefully and helping them see the difference how they're stronger now and may not need to I emphasize may not need to fear those things the groups we're gonna go through today really focus a lot on foundational knowledge they're not addressing any particular issue the first couple of groups that you can do, and I usually go take about two two groups to do this, is to help people learn about anger, anxiety, depression, and addiction and their symptoms. And, you know, that's a lot, hence the reason it takes two groups. I usually do anger, anxiety, and depression kind of together, and then addiction all on its own because we talk about behavioral and substance addictions, but you can pair it up any way you want. One of the things that... want people to do is learn about the mind-body connection. And one way you can do that is through jeopardy. So, potential causes of symptoms. And you might have a question like, um, doing uh, this can cause an increase in HPA axis or threat response system or cortisol levels, however you want to put it, um, in a person and increase anxiety or whatever Um, and you can make up up a whole set of cards you've got three categories the potential causes of symptoms the effects of symptoms and interventions for symptoms generally you know like there are a lot of things that will trigger the HPA axis so I'm kind of loosey-goosey on what people identify so there could be multiple correct answers I don't want it to be frustrating for people. Um, and then when, when the answer is, is revealed, we talk about why that is the correct answer and other potential answers that would have been acceptable. Another thing that you can do is have clients identify their symptoms. What changed or causes uh, or worsens the symptoms? So when things started to get worse, what was different? You know, you were, you were good. Things were going okay, and then what happened? What changed? And then you started to have symptoms again. Or right now, you have this period, and most people are not symptomatic 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So in those little brief glimmers of time when you're not feeling symptomatic, you know, whatever the symptom is, what's different? What's different during that time? How have they dealt with the symptom in the past and the impact of the symptom on them? What I do is I write these four bullet points up on the whiteboard because it's easier for people to remember what they're supposed to say. And then I like the beach ball just because that's the way I, I love my beach ball. Take a big beach ball, one of the real cheap ones from, you know, Dollar General or whatever. And with a permanent marker, write on it the different symptoms of anger, anxiety, depression, and addiction. Toss it around the group. Somebody grabs it. They look down. Whatever symptom they see, they have to answer those questions. And it helps them start recognizing, okay, this is a symptom. This is what causes it. Instead of just being lectured at, it's a lot lot more fun Um, or an enjoyable way to present it. You can also do it with Jenga. You have, the way I do it, so I don't have to have a bunch of different Jenga sets because those get expensive. Um, I have the Jenga blocks color-coded. And then I have stacks of cards. So I have some blue blocks and a blue stack. And I have red blocks and a red stack. People will pull out a Jenga block, and whatever color it is, they pull a card off of that deck stack so if they pulled a red block they pull a card off the red stack and it will have a symptom on it and then from that symptom they need to identify what changed that causes or worsens. you know what changed how they've dealt with the symptom and the impact of the symptom on them my whole goal here is to start increasing awareness of some of the overlap and increase their motivation for change And you can also do this on worksheets. That's a lot less fun, but you can give people worksheets and have them check blocks and do all that kind of stuff. And the next group, which is generally the third group in the series, is negative triggers. Have people identify those things that cause or worsen the symptom and start thinking about those. And, you know, I know we talked about that a little bit already, but I want them to, again, sort of recapitulate that so they're aware of the things and they're becoming more mindful of the things that can trigger their dysphoria. One of the things that I do is break, pe- break groups into smaller groups. So if you've got eight people, you may have four groups of two. And that's fine because they're going to discuss and it's wonderful. If it's, you know, just make it evenly divisible if possible. And I will break groups into one group has hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. Another group has false evidence appearing real. Another group has people, places, and things. And the fourth group will have times of day, anniversaries, and holidays. Okay, so those are their triggers that they're talking about. Then they go to their group, and as a small group, we'll take the hungry, angry, lonely, and tired group, Which of those things can be avoided or prevented? Well, generally, if you're paying attention to your nutrition, you can avoid becoming too hungry. But sometimes, you know, time gets away from us, we skip a meal, something happens. So what can you do to prevent yourself from experiencing symptoms? You know, if you start to hit this hungry part, how can you mitigate it so it doesn't cause you to become anxious or or whatever. Angry. You know, again, talk about the things that trigger anger. Identify which ones are avoided, can be avoided or prevented. If traffic really ticks you off, well, guess what? You can probably figure out times a day where you can travel or routes you can take that can help you avoid that traffic so you are more than likely not going to hit that traffic if you get to work and you haven't already gotten all fired up because of traffic think about how much more energy you have and what a better mind space you're in lonely again sometimes people are going to get lonely what can you do to prevent loneliness and there's a difference between lonely and being alone whole different group but (laughs) we do talk about that and what can you do to prevent yourself from being lonely but when you are lonely because it'll happen sometimes how can you deal with it to mitigate its impact Um, you know maybe it's Thanksgiving and you had to work that weekend because you drew the short straw and you wanted to be with your family so you're sitting at home on Thanksgiving all by yourself and you're feeling kind of lonely Well, that was kind of unavoidable because you had to work and your family lives 200 miles away. So how can you mitigate that loneliness so it doesn't negatively impact you? What can you do? Maybe video chat with them. Um, You know, go out with some friends who are also stuck in town. There are a lot of things that you can do. And tired, how can you avoid getting overtired and overcommitting and Overtired doesn't necessarily mean just lack of sleep. And I think a lot of us have been to that place where we have been just plum exhausted mentally because we've been, you know, doing too many things and not taking time to take a breath and get get regrounded. So they'll talk about what things may lead to you being tired that could trigger symptoms. How can you avoid that? And then when you do get to a place, like during the holidays, where you have this family picnic to go to and this party to go to and you've got to do holiday shopping and this, that, and the other, you feel like you're being pulled in 17 different directions. Okay, there's a lot going on. Now, how do you mitigate that? Because there's more going on. It's going to be easier to get tired how can you prevent yourself from getting overtired and when you start to get tired what do you need to do and a lot of that goes with se- setting boundaries but basically i want the groups you know however many are in the group to start talking about these things and every time you do the group you're going to probably get different answers for each out of each small group and that's cool all i'm wanting them to do is start thinking and start becoming aware of the impact you know people, places, and things, for example, some people you just can't avoid. maybe there's somebody at work that just pushes your every love button and you can't avoid them. so how can you mitigate their impact on you, or maybe you don't get along with your in-laws or something, and you've got to go to their house for Thanksgiving, okay, so how do you mitigate that and so it doesn't trigger? dysphoric feelings. I usually, we talk about these different things kind of generally. We've already done a lot of talking in the past two groups about triggers and symptoms. So this one, I do a little less preparation. I really want people to start um, consolidating it. And I tell them what we're doing. We break up into groups. I usually give them 15, maybe 20 minutes To talk about the stuff and I walk around to the different groups while they're talking and then they come back and each small group shares with the rest of the group what they came up with positive triggers this is one group but it's a fun group because we're talking about fun things for once and you can do this one on flip chart stations Uh, you get the flip chart paper put one up in each corner and then people go around either as a group or individually and answer the question on the flip chart paper. So the first paper would say, what are some sights? what are some things you see that remind you to use your new tools? What are some things that you hear that remind you to new, do, use your new tools would be on the second one. On the third one, what are some smells that you smell that remind you to use your new tools? There may not be many here. and. What are some things that you actually feel that might remind you to use your new tools? One thing that came up with smells uh, one time when I was doing this group was the cleaner that they used at the clinic. And when people smell that, it reminds them to use their new tools. So that's kind of a chemical aromatherapy sort of thing. But, you know, I'll take what I can get. That one usually goes pretty quickly. A lot of it surrounds sights and smells, and sights can be anything from push notifications to pictures to the serenity prayer to whatever it is that reminds them what headspace they want to be in. Sounds can be music that remind them to be in a positive headspace. It can be apps that ding that remind them to do their mindfulness activities or something, you know. There are a variety of of different sounds that they can identify. Then the next one, I spend about, I give them about 10 minutes to go around the room on the positive triggers that remind them to use their new tools. We talk about those, again, 5-10 minutes, brainstorm anything else that comes up, and then we go around again to the next set of flip charts that trigger positive emotions. And this one's fun. Uh, What sites do you see do you want in your environment? What things do you see that make you smile? And what things do you hear that make you smile? What do you smell that triggers positive memories? And what feelings do you have that make you smile? I was cleaning out my closet the other day and I used to raise angora rabbits for their for their fur and they molt just like your dog molts and you collect that hair as they molt and you can um spin it but anyway i don't have them anymore but i ran across an old blanket that i made with uh fur from my my buck and his name was ralph and it just it made me so happy Um, but that touch that soft touch of a um, something soft a cashmere sweater or you know or a soft bunny rabbit or whatever it is focusing on positive ones really helps people um notice that there are good things. We can't take just take away the bad things. We can't just eliminate the bad triggers. If we eliminate all the bad triggers, then somebody's going to be set, sitting in a room with white walls and no sound. We want to add in the good triggers so we're enc- enhancing their environment. And then we talk about how can you add these things to your environment? So if they said You know, certain posters, I know there were a lot of scholastic posters when I was growing up, way back when, that used to make me smile. How can you add these to your environment right now? Well, you can get posters, or you can find JPEGs of them and have them on your mobile device. You can have them as screensavers. You know, how can you creatively work this in so these happy things are regularly popping up in your central and peripheral vision? Vulnerabilities. I start out this group by explaining the concept of vulnerabilities. It's anything that makes you more um, likely to respond to a situation with distress or with extra distress, to become dysregulated. The most common vulnerabilities we talk about are emotional, mental, interpersonal um, vulnerabilities that happen. So emotionally. Anger, jealousy, envy, depression, anxiety, guilt, grief. Mentally, things like poor concentration, rigid thinking, poor problem solving. Makes it difficult if you're faced with a problem and you can't think clearly. It's like, oh, I can't figure out how to solve this. Um, Physically, when we are sleep deprived, have poor nutrition, or are in pain, or sick, that's a vulnerability. Most of us are not on our A game when we're not feeling 100%. Socially, if we lack supportive relationships, that can be a vulnerability because we don't have anybody to turn to. Likewise, if you're in an, envi- in an environment where you're surrounded by people that are unsupportive, that can also be a trigger. Think about a time where you've been at a family gathering or somewhere where all of a sudden everybody was just negative and ranting and you know nothing was making anybody happy. know it's a real downer and it can cause life to seem more negative and more threatening so anyway I go through that real quick a little slower than what I just did uh, when I explain it to clients and then I have Easter eggs and in each Easter egg there are five slips of paper and on the front of those five slips of paper One's labeled emotional, one's labeled mental, one's labeled interpersonal, one's labeled physical or physically, and one's labeled at work. Those are inside the Easter egg. On the outside of the Easter egg, I write in permanent marker one of the vulnerabilities. So for this one, you can see irritability. So if I'm irritable, that's a vulnerability. When I'm irritable... That is nurturing, and what kinds of things does that hatch? Uh, So emotionally, how does that um, impact me when I'm irritable, and what can I do about it? How can I prevent and mitigate my irritability from negatively impacting me emotionally? How can I prevent and mitigate my irritability from negatively impacting me mentally, you know? When I'm irritable, I tend to not concentrate either because I'm ruminating, and that's not helpful. So I need to practice mindfulness in order to be more focused, for example. Interpersonally, if I'm cranky, how, what can I do to prevent it from negatively impacting my relationships? I don't want to bite the head off of the people that I'm working with um, or my family or whatever. You see where we're going. Physically. How can I prevent my irritability from causing me stomach upset, keeping me up at night, and at work? How can I prevent my irritability from negatively impacting my work product? I have them write their solutions on the back of each strip and then put it inside the Easter egg so they know that when they're irritable, what they want to do is nurture the qualities that are inside the Easter egg, such as... um, Emotionally, adding positive things in, into their presence, you know, taking 10 minutes and focusing on the positive things can sometimes help you move past that moment of irritability. Uh, and that can be a fun thing because then everybody ends up with a basket of eggs, so to speak, and it reminds them that they need to pay attention to what they're nurturing. Oops. The next group we do is on mindfulness and vulnerability prevention. So we've already talked about vulnerabilities. They know what they are. Now we're going to talk about mindfulness. And I spend the first 10 minutes talking about the purpose of mindfulness, the benefits, and how it differs from meditation. You can be mindful and meditating, but you don't have to be meditating to be mindful. The first activity that I like to do, you know, I go through when I do my dog and pony show for 10 minutes or so. And then I have everybody walk outside and, you know, walk outside the room into the lobby or whatever, and I hand them all pieces of paper, and I say, okay, I want you to write down everything you remember seeing in the group room while I was talking, um, or everything you remember seeing on the board. And a lot of times I'll have, like on the board, I'll have different stickers and stuff that aren't usually there to see if anybody noticed. But... I give them five minutes to write down what they remembered seeing hearing smelling and then we go back into the group room and they're encouraged to look around and see what things they missed what things they don't remember being in there and that's a little tricky because if i'm talking i'm distracting them but my point is helping them recognize that they're not necessarily totally aware of things the next activity um, that we do is the five four three two one activity and you know my groups are generally 60 minutes to sometimes 90 which is why I break it down and I keep my psychoed component to no more than 10 to 15 minutes because I really want to spend the lion's share doing activities I want to help people understand why this is useful and increase their motivation to learn about it and then I want to have them Engaged in some sort of activity, preferably one they find enjoyable, because that helps them remember um, to integrate the knowledge. The five, four, three, two, one can be fun because you can say, "Okay, I want you to identify five things that you see, and four that you, four that you hear, three that you smell, whatever." You can uh, associate them with the different. Senses. I usually reserve one and two for taste and touch because in a group room, they're probably not tasting or touching much. Um, Give people a minute or two minutes to write that down on a piece of paper and then have everybody in the group room share what they put down for their 54321 and have them notice how each person probably noticed at least one or two things different than somebody else noticed, and that's just all part of what we attend to, and when we are in a bad mood, when we are feeling negative, we tend to pay more attention to the negative stimuli in our environment or the upsetting stimuli in our environment, and when we're happy, we tend to pay more attention to the happy things in our environment. Another activity you can encourage them to do is a color focus, and... This is more fun for them to do when they're, you know, at home. It's something they can do with their kids. We used to do it, something like it, when we were uh, riding on long long car trips. You know, every time you saw a red car, you would call out that you saw a red car. Um, And that encouraged mindfulness because we were really, we were focused on the cars. We weren't, you know, focused on the fact that we had to pee or we were hungry or we were bored. (laughs) But... That's an activity that people can use outside of group and even with their family to help train their brain to be a little bit more mindful. And then the final activity that I do, and you know, based on how, how big the group is, I usually do the five minute exercise, and then I may do five, four, three, two, one, and then I usually skip color focus and go down to what are my thoughts, urges, and sensations when I feel. And I have columns on the, on the whiteboard. When I feel angry, what are my uh, thoughts? What do, what do I think when I'm angry? And, and everybody just shouts out and I fill that up because people start hearing some similarities. What are my urges when I'm angry? What do I want to do? Some people want to scream. Some people want to cry. Some people want to put their fist through a wall. Not saying they're doing it, but what are their urges? What are their sensations? And this is key because a lot of times before we really recognize what emotion we're feeling, we're starting to have those gurglings of sensations. We're starting to have that HPA axis activated, heart rate increase, breathing increase, etc. So what are the sensations I feel? We do this for each emotion because I want people to start recognizing early warning signs of these emotions coming on and we do do we do 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 we do we do anger fear depression you know those are your dysphoric emotions and then we also do happiness and excitement because excitement you're going to have a racing heart too and it's important for people to become aware of their bodily sensations and be able to differentiate i'm excited from i'm terrified And this is the first start to that, getting them to become more mindful because if they notice early on, oh my gosh, I'm starting to feel, you know, like I'm breathing more shallowly. I'm starting to feel like I'm getting distressed. Wonder what that's about. Then it's increasing their mindfulness. They can mitigate that problem. They can use some tool right then and there instead of waiting until they're into a full blown anger episode. Goal identification, it's another group. Top threes, what is most important to you to focus your energy on so you can be happy? We only have so much energy. And how do you want to spend that energy? And sometimes I'll take a gallon jug or a quart jug, whatever, and I'll have different cups out there. And we'll label each cup with what takes people's energy. And then I will have them pour water into each one of those cups and you know, then they have the cups over here for what else they want to do. They'll find quickly that they run out of water, and which is the sort of the same thing as running out of energy and running out of time. So, I want people to recognize they've only got a certain amount of energy. What are they going to use their energy on? Is it worth using a whole bunch of energy, get, getting angry, and cyber stalking and flaming somebody that offended you on Facebook or would you rather use that energy to watch a movie with your kids or do something is that Facebook interaction really pivotal in your life or did they just annoy you Um, so I have them identify what three things are most important to you in your life what three things your your health your job your whatever What three relationships are most important to you, and what do you want them to look like? And what three personal growth goals are important to you? Now, you can have people do this in a collage, which is really fun, because it gives them something to visualize. This is what I want to spend my energy on. This is where I want to go. If you've ever, and I'm not saying it's the healthiest thing to do, but if you've ever been getting ready for spring break or a vacation and you put a picture of that bathing suit that you wanted to wear on the refrigerator, that gave you something to visualize, like, yes, this is where I want to stay focused. Well, this is their happiness collage. And what are your values that support your goals, your top three values? So... You know, if your job is important, then loyalty and dedication and your relationships are important, loyalty again, dedication and compassion maybe, who knows, whatever works for the person, but it gives them an idea and we usually, um, I use the label maker and we'll put the values on labels and they can stick them anywhere on their on their collage that they want to, but that gives them a good visual to take home. Distress tolerance skills. Clients with mood or addictive disorders tend to get stuck in their unpleasant emotion and often impulsively act to eliminate or escape from the distress. Distress tolerance skills help them learn that urges and feelings come in waves, don't have to be acted on, and can be tolerated. And that is a unique concept for a lot of clients. Distress tolerance skills help them learn that urges and feelings can help them practice the pause to make choices which will keep them using their energy to move toward their goals. So distress tolerance skills, when they use them, help them take take, take a step back. One metaphor that I use is a bee. You know, assuming you're not like deathly allergic, if a bee lands on your arm, if you swat at it, your pro, which is your urge, your impulse... You're probably going to make it angry, and you greatly increase the chances that you're going to get stung and it's gonna hurt if you tolerate the bee being on your arm and the bee is the metaphor for your distress, it will fly off in its own time, and nobody's hurt, helping clients learn that you know unpleasant emotions sometimes are like that bee an activity that I've found fun, but you know whatever uh rewrite the lyrics to stop in the name of love by the supremes and i have the chorus already done stop step back observe then proceed mindfully stop step back observe then proceed mindfully think it o over think it o over you know you know how the song goes but then there's the verses in between and i have clients try to rewrite those verses in a way that reminds them to Stop when they get upset. Why do I use song? Because people remember song, and so when they start to get upset, they may start singing that song over and over again to themselves, which helps them, you know, get into the moment and be a little bit more uh, mindful. Addressing distress intolerant thoughts is the next group, and we often use the ABCs. In because I'm cognitive behavioral, distress intolerant thoughts include things like this is unbearable. I must stop feeling this way. If I don't feel better now, I'm going to go crazy. This feeling will keep going on forever. It's wrong to feel this or it's weak or bad to feel this. I shouldn't feel this way. Okay. So those are your, what I call DITs, distress intolerant thoughts. And the activating event, we talk about things like, okay, you have some stress at work. And its work is just unbearable right now. Your distress intolerant thoughts, which ones do you have? And you can practice this with the beach ball again or a hat with slips of paper. And people draw out a slip of paper and they're like, okay, my distress intolerant thought is, we talk about the consequences. We dispute the distress intolerant thoughts with alternate statements. So if somebody says, Uh, work is just super stressful, it is unbearable. That's their distress intolerant thought. I say, okay, what's an alternate statement that you might be able to use? And then evaluate which outcome represents a more effective use of energy and helps them get closer to their goals, remembering that collage. So if they hold the belief that this is unbearable, what are the consequences? If they hold the belief that this is really challenging right now, I'm glad it's going to be over in a month, or here are my options, I can transfer, I can do these other things. If they start seeing that they're not stuck and powerless, how does that free up their energy? Another group on distress tolerance is teaching the wave metaphor and watching clouds. Um, uh, That's my clip. All right, don't worry if you can't hear this. What's more important is that you see and we can have clients focus on this and understand how their emotions are like those waves that are coming in. They come in, they crest, and then they disappear into the sand. And this can be really calming for somebody to focus on when they're they're feeling dysregulated. Another one that I like is clouds. And let me start at the beginning of this one because it was better in the beginning. If you have people focus on the clouds as examples of their emotions and, you know, their thoughts, you know, this distressful thought I have is on this cloud right here. And I just put my thought there and watch it float away. And this distressful thought I have, it's starting to come up and then it's going to disappear into those other clouds and it's gone. Both of those obviously are... um, things that people can do at home so they have something to focus on. We want to discuss the concept of radical acceptance and differentiate radical acceptance from agreement or powerlessness and use the house metaphor. If you have a house and it is 10 feet over the property line, well, that's a bad thing. Um, (laughs) But pushing on it with all your might to move it 10 feet isn't going to do any good. and So you are not able to move that house as you want to. So you've got to accept the good with the bad. It doesn't mean you're powerless to change anything about the situation. It just means you may be powerless to change that one particular aspect of the situation. So what are you going to do about the fact that your house is 10 feet over the property line? Have clients brainstorm ways to create an action plan to improve the moment and accept reality. And these are two acronyms that are used a lot in dialectical behavior therapy. And whoops, one of the things I like doing is having them have something, and I'm not endorsing Walgreens by any means, but it's one example. Have them create a collage that represents for, um, accepts You know, the first one is activities. What kinds of activities can I do to help me get through when I'm feeling upset? Have them create a little collage that represents their acronym and then take a picture of it. That picture can be sent off to any number of places to be turned into posters, um, mouse pads, floor mats, coasters, And even pillows and blankets. So they have that with them where they can see it in a prominent place. And some people have taken the blankets, the ones, you know, we have them printed out as blankets, and they attach it, they attach a strip of material to the back of it and hang it on a curtain rod. So it's hanging like a tapestry and it reminds them of ways they can cope when they're feeling distress. It's also a fun family activity to do. With accept, another activity you can do is order the little button pins, you know, like we used to have on our backpacks when we were in school. They're really inexpensive, and people can put different tools that they would use on the little button pins and then pin them either to their backpack or to um, a strip of material that they can then hang on the wall, whatever they want to do. You can also stick them into cork boards. Cognitive distortions. Educate. Clients about cognitive distortions and help them learn to identify them. Then they play this game. Uh, Clients read a statement and identify which cognitive distortion it is. So they'll, they'll read a statement like, John came home from work, he was late, and he smelled like perfume, so he must be cheating on me. Okay, that's arbitrary inference because you don't have all the evidence. You don't know where the perfume came from. Maybe he went shopping to get you perfume for your birthday. So the goal is, after they identify what the cognitive distortion is, then they want to identify how to combat it. And with, in the case of arbitrary inference, what's the evidence? So on one side of the piece of paper, I have the statement written. On the other side of the piece of paper, and they're not supposed to flip it over and cheat, is the information they need to combat that cognitive distortion. But they read it out, and then somebody in the group will say, "That's arbitrary inference," or "That's magnification." It's a little bit more fun than just lecturing about it. You can also do the clothespin game. If you've been to a baby shower, you've probably experienced this one. Little modification, but when we are having um, sharing time in group, everybody has five clothespins, and if somebody says something that represents a cognitive distortion, then some, another person in the group can identify it, call them out on it, and say, that sounds like mind reading. I'm wondering if you had all the facts or whatever. And if they agree that it was a cognitive distortion, then the person who called them out gets the clothespin. The person with the most clothespins at the end of the group wins. What do they win? It depends, but uh, they can win something. Challenging questions. And I like this one because we play people's court, if you will. The plaintiff states their belief. You know, um, she gave me a dirty look, so she, she must hate me. Or she always gives me a dirty look, so she must hate me. That's the plaintiff's belief. So the plaintiff is the one that's coming in with the cognitive distortion. Uh, the defendant is somebody else in the group that's going to argue the other side. And the defendant comes in and says... Um, maybe she was having a bad day or whatever the judge says plaintiff what are the facts supporting your belief and you want the plaintiff to identify facts supporting the fact that the person hates her she hates me because and I want facts if the plaintiff starts giving feelings then as the judge I'm going to object Um, and I also want to know how reliable is the source of evidence and then I ask the defendant, the person who's arguing the opposite, what are the facts against the plaintiff's beliefs and how reliable is the source of that evidence? And as the judge, I highlight the all or none, nothing thinking. If there is any, I may say, so I hear the plaintiff is saying that this always happens. Defendant, are there any exceptions to this? Do you think anything is going on? The plaint- Then I ask plaintiff, what is the evidence that she hates you, the belief, is probable? What, what is your evidence for that? And then I ask the defendants, what is the evidence that your belief, that Sally was just having a bad day, is probable? Finally, I say, plaintiff, help me understand the big picture. Who else or what else is there? What else was going on that might have contributed to this situation? And, you know, maybe the plaintiff was wearing really strong perfume that day, and, it irritated that person's nose or whatever. And then ask the defendant the same question. The defendant is supposed to highlight, you know, what else do you have to add to what the plaintiff said? And the defendant may say, you know, maybe Sally had just gotten out of senior management because that was on Wednesday and it w- didn't go well. And so she was thinking about something else and just happened to look in your direction or something. It sounds convoluted when you're going through it like this, but once you practice it a couple of times, it actually can be pretty fun arguing. One person is arguing that their cognitive distortion is right, and another person is arguing "Mm, their options. And people get used, and nobody is the plaintiff all the time. So people uh, get experience arguing against the cognitive distortions. Locus of control. We talk about internal versus external locus of control. Uh, Internal, people believe they have the the ability to control everything. External locus of control, destiny and fate are in total control. Um, And we talk about the serenity prayer uh, in our groups. We don't necessarily say prayer. We say the serenity saying sometimes, depending on the group I'm working with. And help people understand the difference between or the need for serenity, courage, and wisdom. Then we explore what it means and how it feels to not be able to control something, which is really powerful for a lot of people. And we talk about what powerlessness represents in that person's life and ways to cope with those things that are out of personal control. And sometimes this ends up being two two days' worth of groups. Um, And then the activity we do. What stressors are within and outside of personal control? On the on an, Outside of an envelope, I will put a stressor, you know, my relationship with so-and-so. <clears throat> and on the inside, there will be different slips of paper. What he says, what he thinks, what he does, how he reacts, what I say, what I think, what I do, how I react, and my exposure to him. All of those things go in the envelope and... Then the person opens the envelope and separates out in two piles, in my control and not in my control. And then we talk about how do you feel when you see which parts are in your control. You can do the same thing with smoking. So how it makes me feel, my urges, how I react, exposure to smoking triggers, exposure to non-smoking triggers, and using relapse prevention strategies. You can put whatever you want to in the envelope. But again, having people recognize that, you know, sometimes urges are not going to be within their control. How they deal with them is. And I want them to start separating those things. Then we move on to attributions. For example, explaining attributions, you know, global, stable, um, and internal, or specific, changeable, and external. So if you do something nice, what is an internal stable glo- global attribution well i i'm a nice person all the time and i do nice things so that's pretty internal stable and global or if i do something nice my external attribution was she deserved it this time and in this place or whatever uh, so it's much more specific or if you get a promotion. Internal was, would be, I'm smart, I'm a hard worker, and I deserved it. External would be, the boss needed somebody in this slot at this particular point in time. Helping people recognize that there are, you know, we want more good internal, stable, global attributions, but we want more external, changeable, and specific attributions for things that are distressful such as you wipe out on the sidewalk. Internal, stable, and global, that person is so clumsy. External, changeable, and specific, there is a crack in the sidewalk that the person tripped over. Okay. Come up with six to ten scenarios. Have one group create an internal, stable, global attribution, and the other create an external, stable, and specific attribution for each scenario. And then talk about how you feel. Or how people feel when they believe the internal, stable, global versus the external, changeable, specific attribution. How do you feel? You know, if it's a good thing, then I'm going to feel really good if it's internal, stable, and global. Because I'm going to be like, yeah, it's all me. Um, if it's an unpleasant thing and I think, yeah, it's all me, then I, I might feel bad about myself. So we want to talk about how changing attributions might change how people feel about a situation. Purposeful action pathway. When people are in the present issue, they have the choice in their behaviors, their thoughts, and their feelings. So if they choose um, impulsive and escape behaviors, it usually uses their energy to nurture dysphoric feelings and causes physical health problems, stress-related illnesses, negatively impacts their relationships and their mood. If they choose to deal with it using mindfulness, vulnerability prevention, distress tolerance, etc., it usually results in less dysphoric feelings, a more distress-tolerant, positive and helpful mindset, improved physical health, better relationships, and a stronger sense of self-esteem and self-efficacy. This is roughly based off acceptance and commitment therapy. I have lots of other videos on that. Self-esteem is the relationship with yourself. So one of the things we do is order a friend. And I will have an order sheet with these characteristics over here, compassion, loyalty, reliability, honesty, accepting, trustworthy, creative, sense of humor, good listener, supportive and enjoys blank Um, and I have people order their best friend I collect all those sheets tally up the requests and then identify what most people are looking for and then I ask participants which of these qualities do you have and a lot of times they're looking at the board going "Hmm, I sound like I'm a pretty good candidate for a good friend and then I say well if you're a good candidate for a good friend for somebody in this room why how can you be a good candidate for your own best friend? And what can you do to be your own best friend? You can also have them describe who they think they should be and who are, they are right now and look for similarities and differences and evaluate whether those differences are important. If so, make a plan to start achieving those goals. Interpersonal effectiveness, asking for what you need and getting it. So, having people learn to ask for help and say no when they need to, by creating win-win situations. So, you might make a list of needs people have, like you know, I wish he would call if he was going to be late, or I want them to want him to drop off my dry cleaning. And then, for each one of those needs, have group members brainstorm how to create a win-win in order to ask a person for for that favor. And in a win-win situation Help them be able to set and maintain healthy boundaries. You can do this through skits Um, Takes a little bit of creativity there and be able to develop and maintain supportive relationships with communication skills I use listen confirm respond so I have people practice sharing about their day and then have in, in pairs and the other person listens then confirms by p- paraphrasing and responding to what the person said. I do give them prompts so they know how to paraphrase by starting with, so what you're saying is, or it sounds like what happened, or it must have been frustrating when. I want them to use objective I statements when they're communicating as well, which means they use I statements, I feel blank when but they're objective too. So instead of saying, I feel angry uh, because you're such a slob, well, that's not objective. I don't know how to fix such a slob. I feel angry when you leave your underwear on the floor. That's, you know, easier to understand. Using all skills learned thus far, have clients identify triggers or problems in a small group and choose or explain how to stay miserable and three effects of that. How to tolerate the distress, the distressful situation, and three effects of that. How they can change how they feel and think about the situation, and three effects of that. And how to change the situation when possible, and three effects of that. So helping them evaluate their response choices. Groups are extremely cost effective. Uh, This series that we just went through of roughly 24 groups provides the foundation for clients to begin living a happier life. It is recommended to use written and visual material in addition to lecture and interactive applications to help clients fully acquire the knowledge and skills. So give them something to take home. Alrighty, I'm two minutes over again, I apologize. Um, In response to Lisa, um, yes, my group members are usually really open to doing group activities because they'd really rather do that than have me sit there and talk at them for an hour. So that's been my experience. When I worked in a residential facility, I was one of the only therapists that would gamify groups. Every All all the other therapists would pretty much lecture at people. So it was also a change, and they enjoyed a change. Um, When you're using... When you're trying to do groups in e-therapy, you do have the ability, you know, I talked about small group activities several times, you do have the ability to break people into breakout rooms in a lot of the different platforms, so that can be fun. But again, with e-therapy, always make sure that you are conforming to HIPAA and high-tech requirements and have a signed business associate agreement in hand with the providers that you use.